Hi, welcome to Nutra Champion, a podcast series where we speak with experts specializing in nutrition research, including scientists, doctors, and policy makers. Here, we will find out more about their research journey, their career, and even some personal life lessons. I'm Ting Ming, the editor of Nutra Ingredients Asia and your host for this podcast. You can listen to our past episodes on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. For the first Nutra Champion podcast of year 2023, we are honoured to be joined by Professor John Wader, Foundation and Director of the National Centre for Naturopathic Medicine, launched in 2020 with the aim of improving health through both integrative and conventional medical therapies. Also, the Maurice Blackmore Chair of Naturopathic Medicine and Professor of Public Health at Southern Cross University, Prof Wader is a well-known figure in academic research with over 200 publications to his name and is on the editorial board of eight peer-reviewed international academic medical research journals, including the journal Advances in Integrative Medicine. Hi, Professor Wader. Thank you so much for joining me today on this very first podcast of the year for Nutri Ingredients Asia. So we are about three weeks into year 2023. So how has everything been like for you? Oh, everything's been 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 great, Dingman. Thanks for for having me. Um, uh, I, I think like a lot of people, we're really looking forward to what twenty twenty three brings. It's been a a rough couple of years for for a lot of people. Um, and uh, you know, I think a lot of us are, are really looking forward. Uh, being uh, you know, that's really melded our minds to what 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 comes up in the future. So we've got a lot of really exciting plans that we're looking forward to this year. Yes, indeed. So um, can you tell us more about what would be some of the key goals and the priorities for you in terms of research and your work at the, you know, in terms of advocating uh, naturopathy and also integrative uh, medical therapies for this year? Yeah, sure. So, you know, we, we are a naturopathic centre and we we try and um, instill that that focus into to everything that we do. And, and for those that aren't very familiar with what, what naturopathy um, is it's essentially uh, you know using the body's own natural healing ability uh, and supporting that uh, process. So that can be through everything from you know enhanced lifestyle and behavioural you know medicine. So we have a, a self care strategy. We have a food as medicine program. We have a lifestyle medicine, a masters of lifestyle medicine program, which is a board fellowship program. Um, all the ways to things like you know really quite advanced clinical biochemistry and botanical medicine, which sort of you know. Um, you know, uh, works with the body's own nutritional bio, you know, uh, nutritional biochemistry and, and and physiological processes to uh, improve or regulate that for, uh, you know, for clinical conditions. So, um, you know, we're really looking forward to you know working across the spectrum. Um, in that, we have um, a number of programs for training naturopaths, for training all types of health practitioners. Um, in uh, lifestyle medicine, we have a graduate entry program uh, which trains pharmacists, nurses in, in naturopathy. And we also have a fellowship program for integrative medicine for medical doctors as well. So um, what that's really doing is allowing us to not just do the research. So we do do a lot of research here as well. We have um, uh, Australia's two largest medicinal cannabis clinical trials are being run through the centre, for example. Uh, we're doing um, some trials in uh, food as medicine for disaster recovery, for example, you know, actually, you know, um, trying to work with people uh, in low resource settings um, after, you know, in many cases, their kitchens have, have, have you know, floated away. Um, but also, you know, we're really excited at that sort of 
interface between clinical practice and research and developing that a lot further this year as well. So, um, you know, we'll be having uh, our student numbers growing quite considerably. We'll have our clinical presence growing because of that. We've only started in 2020, as you said, um, but this will be the first year we'll have a really significant um, clinical practice research interface. And I think that's that's going to bring a whole, you know, host of opportunities um, just by, you know, getting clinician expertise into guiding our research program a little bit more, but also, you know, just the opportunities of actually being able to use that, um, that resource to actually uh, attract um, patients for research purposes in a way that actually reflects clinical practice properly. So um, that's, that's really the focus of, of, of this year is sort of taking, you know, um, taking the, the centre out uh, to the community and, and that's what we're really looking forward to. Okay, so you mentioned that there's this uh, cannabis trial, two of them, right, that, that, that mm. is taking place um, in the centre. Could you tell us more about the study design? What is the, you know, the, the study objective of, of, of the trial? Yeah, sure. And, and we actually have quite a few cannabis trials happening at the moment. So the, the two large ones are, are regulatory in nature and they're really, um, you know, focused on supporting regulatory cl uh, claims for the TGA, uh, for the new over-the-counter um, uh um you know framework that they've developed so so obviously um you know they're ongoing we can't um actually you know, speak to the results of those because we don't know them yet so um but uh but both companies have actually announced um that through to their shareholders already that then they're, they're they're currently underway but we've also got a, a a number of um you know smaller trials in terms of numbers but i think also very interesting so we've got um you know, uh, trial on cannabis and fibromyalgia. We've got one on Parkinson's, uh, which is at the preclinical stage at the moment, uh, about to advance into that clinical stage. And we've, um, you know, we've also just uh, finalised a um, a small trial because the numbers are quite small for for cannabis and brain glioblastoma as well, which which had you know encouraging results. And we're currently just in the process of developing what the next steps for that one are. So, um, you know, we are, you know. Cannabis, you know, is is certainly a very interesting plant, and um, I, I I like to think of cannabis as sort of the canary in the coal mine of botanical medicine. You know, a lot of people understand the the complexity of cannabis, um, as a as a you know uh, phytochemical compound or compounds is probably more accurate, um, but really every every plant medicine is exactly the same. So if you you know if you pull apart um, you know uh, hypericumus and John's wort, you know it's got compounds that can upregulate and downregulate certain as you know certain neurotransmitters, uh, same as and Mary's thistle for um, for liver function or, or you know any 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 plant medicine that's actually uh, bioactive is is equally as complex, and that's one of the things that we're really ex you know excited to be exploring and actually uh, documenting that complexity. Um, but also using traditional knowledge to actually guide that complexity, because a lot of, you know, um, you know, if you look at Ayurvedic medicine, they knew um, this particular plant harvested in the monsoon would have a different action to if it was harvested post monsoon or <laughs> during the dry season. Um, you know, in Chinese medicine, they often talk about, you know, um, the difference in 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 uh, therapeutic uh, potential of plants grown on the sunny side of the mountain versus the <laughs> the not sunny side. If you look at um, you know, Western herbal medicine, you know, Culpeper, you know, has paragraphs from the 16th century in his textbook about how the uh, different growing conditions affect these plants. So we're really excited about sort of, you know, I, I guess, you know, taking that complexity that's now acknowledged in cannabis and actually expanding that to, to botanical medicines more generally uh, and really being guided by traditional knowledge in that process too. And so, um, you know, one of the, the really exciting things we have starting this year as well is, um, 
uh, Andrea, Dr. Andrea Bogacic um, will actually be launching her framework for traditional knowledge to inform preclinical studies of, of um, botanical medicines. And we uh, have just had um, Dr. Alana Gold uh, start with us um, very recently, who uh, is Australia's first Indigenous um, researcher actually focusing on, on Indigenous traditional knowledge and traditional, um, traditional medicine. So she'll be developing a framework to uh, appropriately um, you know, work with Indigenous medicines in Australia as well. So, you know, we're really trying to bridge that gap between science and tradition because often tradition and science um, have been put forward as a false dichotomy. But I, I think the, the reality is people just haven't critically looked at this um, enough. So we're just trying to um, to bridge that gap uh, as it were. So, um, yes, yeah, so, so I, I have diverted a little bit from your cannabis topic, but, you know, we um, cannabis is a very, very complex um plant and you know we, we certainly do have our two largest trials which are regulatory in nature and and sort of around the claims that the tga allow which aren't huge claims but i think there's a um a number of projects that we're actually working on with cannabis and we've actually just partnered with a couple of other universities to uh bid for a um for a, a hemp crc a cooperative research center which is a a very large government scheme um and we have about 40 companies and and six universities involved in that that will be um you know, basically, uh, you know, uh, putting forward a proposal to the government. The government funds about five or six of these a year uh, to, you know, to put um, tens of millions of dollars into, into into cannabis research in Australia to actually support the industry further as well. So it, it is a big part of what we're doing and um, it is a very exciting pl uh, plant, but I, I like to think of it and remind people that, you know, this this plant is certainly exciting, but the whole <laughs> ecosystem of, of of botanical medicine and nutritional medicine is equally as exciting. Um, you know, we can't just um, cannabis isn't the only thing that works or is exciting. Um, there's a whole world of um, nutrients and and phytochemical compounds that are equally as exciting. We really want to explore the potential of those. Yeah, indeed, indeed. You mentioned the two trials that is um involving the OTC over the counter TGA claims, right? Uh, when do you expect the trials to be completed? Is it any time this year? Um, yeah. So one should be completed this year, um, at some stage, and the the other one will um probably be completed early next year. So we're just in negotiations over how long um that claim needs to be with the tga uh for example so working with regulators is often quite difficult I, uh, I'm, I'm sure that you've uh had this issue particularly in, in in natural medicines it can be quite quite um quite interesting so you know you not only have to show that you have improved a, a certain condition by a certain amount you also have to show that 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 improvement is sustained or um, you know, so some of our trials, not not for cannabis, I should say, but some of our weight loss trials have been on weight. Uh, some of our trials have been on weight loss, um, and certainly there are. There's been you know success in immediate weight loss, but now we're actually working on making sure that weight loss is sustained over a six month period. So you know there are certain things that the TGA says. You look, know, <laughs> you know, the direct well, the TGA in Australia, but regulators internationally will say, look, that's that's great that you get the result immediately, but you know, can you actually sustain that? So. So some of these trials do have to, you know, have six months, twelve month follow ups just to show that they actually are um, sustainable. Sustainable in their use. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. So, um, so, uh, so generally, what we we do in that case is we do um, have the option for follow up, but sometimes we can actually submit the data to the regulator early, and if that's enough, that's enough. So, so we um, the long and short story of that is. Uh, TBD and determined by the regulator as to whether it's sufficient for the claim. So, 
Yeah, so you mentioned the, the part about, um, you know, bridging the gap between science and tradition, mm. uh, especially when um, you are reaching out to the, um, you know, doctors, uh, conventional doctors, in a mm. sense, you know, like who are who, who are trained in the Western medicine, uh, trained train in this area, how do you, how do you train them? Like, what are some of the key challenges? Because sometimes they might have a different view, right, as to how things should be done. Oh, completely, completely. And look, you know, my background was actually as a uh, nurse in an operating theatre in Australia. So that's a very non-holistic, very reductionist <laughs> sort of um uh you know practice and you know moving to a uh you know more holistic and sort of more philosophically uh you know philosophically is probably the wrong word but certainly more holistic and more um expansive uh way of looking at health and you know looking at health from a positive health point of view so not just moving from negative one to zero but zero to one um you know actually encouraging good health and wellness not just you know absence of disease so what was quite challenging from uh, you know, from, you know, from that perspective. And I, I can see why it is challenging for a lot of medical practitioners. And I think, you know, one of the, one group that does seem to get it is the the general practitioners, the family medicine community. Um, they are almost the outcasts of medicine in many ways. If you look at Australia, there's, you know, there's, um, you know, there's uh, over, you know, there's over 100,000 medical practitioners out there and less than 20% of them are actually uh, general practitioners. And, and that's where they sort of do blend the art and the science of medicine quite, you know, quite a lot because, you know, you've got to work with a patient there who's quite complex, you know, physiologically and physically, but also emotionally and mentally. It's, it's a very complex picture to put in place. And what um, <clears throat> certainly what we found is um, there is a, a bit of opposition, but there's a lot of interest from the medical practitioner community in, in knowing that things are, are more complex and they perhaps have been trained um, during their training. And, you know, that's that's a reflection on just the, the huge amount of work that medical practitioners need to know about. So, um, you know, we, you know, uh, medical practitioners need to be trained to make on the spot decisions, you know, in emergency medicine, you know, within, you know, that they have no room for self-doubt. And, um, uh, but if you move to uh, primary care and family medicine, you actually need that self-doubt because you need to actually do that differential diagnosis and say it's not this, it's not that, and you need to be able to work across systems. So I think um, it has been quite challenging. We've been working with the uh, Australasian Integrative Medicine uh, Association uh, to develop a fellowship program for medical practitioners, um, and we're working with the US uh, Consortium uh, of Integrative Medicine um, on that as well. So. Uh, this will be a uh, a recognised board uh, fellowship qualification for medical practitioners, and I think it's really um, exciting that that's actually been, you know, it's quite controversial that that's been housed in a naturopathic program, but I think it's quite exciting because it really does allow that discussion of ideas between, you know, not just naturopaths and medical practitioners, but we're based in the Faculty of Health, so we have um, nursing practitioners, allied health practitioners, you know, physiotherapists, you know, speech pathologists, you know, the whole gamut of, of health professions actually um, involved in that process. And I, I think integrative medicine has often been framed as, you know, combining complementary medicine and, um, you know, conventional medicine. But I think what it's actually not done really well traditionally is that interprofessional education and interprofessional practice part of it. So it's been either, you know, it's been sort of, you know, the the emergence of these two different fields and just putting them together and combining them rather than sort of letting them, um, 
you know, interact and evolve and, and, and coalesce. And there's a lot that conventional medicine can learn from integrative medicine, and there's a lot that um, integrative uh, complementary medicine can learn from uh, from conventional medicine as well. And so we're really excited to be in this unique position where we're in a comprehensive university. We've got other allied health um, and, and nursing uh, professions here. We're training medical practitioners. We're working with the local hospitals and, and health districts. Um, and we are, um, you know, working with medical schools across across the world and organisations such as the World Health Organisation. So I think there's a lot of exciting developments that come from that. And we're, we're really hoping to, to, you know, bridge that gap. There'll always be a sceptical community. Um, and, you know, I, I think, you know, you, you can, um, you know, you can say the same thing about complementary medicine. There'll always be a group of naturopaths that just, you know, refuse to admit that there's any benefit at all from pharmaceutical medications or surgery. So, um, but, you know, if you look at our our work in, in integrative oncology, for example, you know, we know that, you know, nutritional supplements can actually reduce the side effects of chemotherapy and actually make the chemotherapy work more effectively, make the pipe, you know, make the patient, uh, the patient experience more pleasant while they actually do that. So you get, um, you know, patient benefit, um, you get clinical benefit um, by combining them, uh, not, not, not sort of trying to do them separately. So, um, you know, I really think that integrative approach is, is, is the future and, and we're really excited to be part of that. Yeah, because you're also involved in some of the regulatory um, work as well, right? So I would mm. like to find find out from you, you know, now that complementary medicines, they are being institutionalized in Australia by the TGA. What do mm. you think is the next step that complementary medicines or naturopathy should head towards to in Australia? Yeah, well, you know, I, I guess, you know, you, you do say that it has been institutionalized by the TGA, but one thing we have found quite difficult recently and we're, we're just starting to um try and work with you know the regulator but also you know other uh, other companies that and 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 whatnot about that is the tga has recognized traditional claims um under its framework um but what we have found is there's a loss of nuance and a bit of difficulty in in, in bridging that gap so you know regulators by default generally um when they regulate they want to they speak in analytical chemistry terms so um, you know, they want to see evidence of, um, you know, in a traditional text um, as such. And for things like Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine, that's fine. But for traditional African medicine or, you know, Indigenous Australian medicine, it's it's an oral tradition. It's not really being captured that well. Um, you know, there's a whole host of IP issues and the, the regulatory frameworks really aren't dealt you know, they're really not um, well built to, to deal with that kind of stuff. And even even for some of the Western um, herbal medicines that are, you know, incredibly popular um, in Australia and, you know, culturally relevant to a large part of the European population um, in Australia. Um, you know, the the way that things were written, you know, 200 years ago, they didn't describe, you know, what the solvent extraction or water extraction or what kind of percentage or, you know, um, what kind of, um, you know, detailed extraction techniques might have been used in that, in, in, in that setting. So when a company actually tries to you know, build on traditional knowledge using that, you know, claim for a traditional area that has been used traditionally, but, you know, perhaps there's been evidence of a compound that comes out um, uh, that, that isn't safe and you can re re reduce it with a water extraction rather than a solvent extraction, you know, like, like they've done in Carver, for example, uh, or they um, they want to build standardisation around how they actually extract that. Um, you know, the, the TGA is almost in a, in a situation where it will recognise something for a traditional claim that's made in a bathtub, but not if you try and build these safety, you know, these safety mechanisms around it. So you've got this conflict between 
the good manufacturing practice sometimes and you know that um coherence with tradition so one of the things that we're really trying to do is sort of bridge that gap in that regulatory structure say okay it's still a traditional product but it's been made in a way that's actually improving good manufacturing practice but it still has fidelity to that tradition um so you still should be able to use that traditional claim even though it's made in a safer and more effective um way using modern extraction techniques or whatever so uh, you know another example is um uh um you know uh, you know child claims you know herbalists have been using herbal medicines for children for uh, thousands of years, but if you um, look at childhood as a concept, it really didn't exist until about 100 years ago, so 100 or 150 years ago. So you won't find any traditional texts which actually differentiate child doses or child use from, from adult use. So, you know, the TGA is starting to, and other regulators are, are starting to, you know, just, just you know, not, not, not sort of, you know, halt or stop but just question you know how do we actually identify if something's got a tradition a valid traditional claim in in childhood use um so echinacea is a really good example of that's been used traditionally in children for, for hundreds of years but if you open a textbook you won't you know you won't find that because you know children were just treated as little adults and you know if they were smaller they had a smaller dose so um so there's a few so so one of the things that we're really trying to to look at and we're working with not just the tga but also um who and um other universities in the US and Europe and, um, you know, the regional offices of WHO, particularly in Africa, um, around trying to develop frameworks that um, allow for traditional claims, because there's a lot of wisdom and knowledge and tradition, um, but also allow, you know, things like GMP and that kind of stuff to actually be, you know, properly adopted for traditional products as well. So so we're just, that, that that's probably one of the areas of focus in terms of regulation that we're really um, interested in, um, in terms of the product side anyway, and obviously we're, we're very focused on, on practitioner regulation as well, because there's um, there's one thing to have a great product, but you also need to have someone who knows how to use that product, <laughs> how to guide people through that product. And, um, uh, you know, self-care is uh, uh, a really, you know, important growth area of most countries now uh, in terms of their health policy. Um, but that usually involves a advocate or a health advocate sort of guiding them through that process as well. So, so making sure those people are adequately trained. And I think particularly in that integrative model, making sure that they know the drug herb nutrient interactions that are, um, you know, not just negative, but I think the other thing that we, we often overlook in terms of that interaction, for, you know, our profile is some of these supplements actually make pharmaceutical drugs more effective <laughs> and more safe. So there's a positive interaction too, I think that we can actually guide, you know, that we can actually um, encourage a lot more of. So so they're, they're the two areas of focus, I think, in terms of regulation and integration that we're trying to focus on um, this year. Okay. And because you were involved in the Australian budget uh, 2022 to 2023 discussion uh, for, for uh, last year, right? So I, I, I was wondering, like, how would this... Um, uh, the, the budget work towards the, some of the improvements that you hope to see that you mentioned just now? Yeah, yeah. And look, you know, basically, you know, what the government has decided is that the the, the current medical, uh, the way of delivering medical care in Australia is not really fit for purpose. It was a, a, a fantastic system designed, you know, 40 years ago, and it was really relevant for that idea where chronic disease was not as, a pro, you know, not as prevalent. Um, where most of the issues were on acute conditions and hospital care and, and that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, what we're seeing now and what the, the government certainly 
and and what the health minister has said, you know, in the in that budget process is that you know primary care is 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 going to be increasingly important. Um, medical practitioners aren't going into primary care, and we can't rely on medical practitioners to go into primary care. In Australia, thirteen percent um, of medical graduates will go into primary care. Um, so you know we need to look at other health professions, other health approaches. Um, you know, I was involved in developing the self care policy blueprint for the government in 2020. Uh, I think it was launched in 2021 for, for obvious reasons. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, actually, you know, in, in, in empowering, you know, uh, the public to make their own health choices and to be an active participant in their own health. And I think there's a huge role for, um, you know, uh, the, you know, the, the, the supplement sector in, in, in that, certainly. So, um, but also, you know, there's there's the real sort of, you know, focus on preventive health. What does preventive health actually mean? I think there's, you know, there's always been a, um, you know, there's always been a bit of a sort of tokenistic, uh, you know, throwaway lines around preventive health. But I think with this current budget process, the government's actually thinking about it a little bit more seriously. And they're, they're, they're a little bit more, they're, they're trying to be a little bit more inventive about how they might actually do things. I think they're a little bit more open to ideas. So, um, you know, certainly, you know, there are a lot of, you know, things that we, um, you know, are, are going to be proposing in the next year. We've got our pre-budget submission for next year um, actually going through and we'll, we'll make that publicly available when that goes through. That goes through on the 27th of January, I think. So we have written that. Um, and, you know, that, that integrative model is really what we're, we're sort of looking at. And, you know, there are, um, you know, there's really good examples, you know, from Australia, for example, where, you know, um, dietary education and clinical nutrition um, guided by appropriate health professions such as naturopaths can actually reduce the um, you know uh, you know uh, after cardiac surgery can actually reduce the um, the need to go back to surgery later uh, after that so there's a whole host of things I think we're not actually fully taking advantage of um, using um, you know the the resources we have from you know the nutritional supplement sector and dietary supplement sector from botanical medicines and and from the practice community itself so um so they seem to be a lot more inventive um and open to ideas and i don't really know if they know what they want to do but that sort of presents a really good opportunity to present solutions and be solutions focused for them so uh so we're we're certainly going to be focusing on that a lot more over the coming year uh and certainly there are other countries, you know, every country is having the same issue. Um, and I think, you know, if you're looking at the WHO at the moment, they're just in the process of developing their new traditional medicine strategy or actually voting on whether they should do another traditional medicine strategy. And really, the idea was all, all, always about, OK, we're going to focus on products and policy at this stage, but integration is now the next phase of that. So, um, you know, I think everyone should be reaching out to the WHO and reminding them how important that next strategy is. Um, but, you know, we're actually getting to brass tacks now. You know, the, the, the policy frameworks, the regulatory structures, people actually identified these products as therapeutic tools now, and now we need to actually take that next step and go, well, how do we integrate them for 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 the benefit of, of, of the public more broadly? Yeah, and India, I guess, is one of the countries which has placed a lot of focus on naturopathy, right? Especially with their traditional use of Ayurvedic medicine. And last year, you also attended the India's Ministry of Ayush naturopathy, uh, naturopathy Day celebrations. Mm. So how, how did you find that? Um, what, what were some of the highlights of the event and how do you think uh, these will help to, uh, you know, guide some of the... Uh, projects that you are working on in in Australia. 
Mm. Look, India is a fascinating, um, a fascinating place because it, it it is you know a lot of countries have fully embraced traditional medicine, um, and you know you see, um, uh, you know China is an obvious example. Traditional Chinese medicine is is basically integrated into that system, but almost exclusively so. So you know it's very difficult for for naturopathy or you know uh, herbal medicines from another tradition to to sort of gain traction in. In, in that Chinese market because there is one dominant traditional medicine uh, group. India has always been really fascinating because, you know, Ayush, you know, Ayurveda, Yoga, Naturopathy, Yunani, Siddha, um, you know, there's it's been, always been medically pluralist, uh, pluralistic, not just in terms of conventional and traditional, but also having multiple traditional systems um, working within the country itself. So, um, yeah, naturopathy in India has always been a, um, you know, a, a, a very interesting, uh, you know, profession. Uh, you know, for those that may not know, naturopathy was actually introduced to India by by um, uh, well, not introduced, but popularized in India by by Gandhi. So the the, the National Institute of Naturopathy is actually Gandhi's old hospital in Pune. Um, uh, and you know, it's it's really a uh, a drugless, well, not drugless, but really focused on that sort of um, you know education, behavioral, lifestyle, that drugless form of care. Um, before having to move to even herbal medicines or then or, or then to pharmaceutical medicines. So, you know, there's been some really interesting approaches that they've, um, you know, taken in, in that country, everything from reintroducing, you know, foodstuffs that have been forgotten by, um, you know, by, by the public to, um, you know, using uh, different, uh, you know, in, in HIV patients, for example, you know, reducing the, um, uh, the impact on CD4 count um, of, of of HIV to to reduce the not need for antiretroviral medications, but you know potentially the the, the sort of um uh you know the urgency for them or the um, because you know India in a low resource setting has you know not always had the the best access to those, so sometimes people had to wait to a certain level. So, um, but yeah, there's a real interesting push in India now, not just for the integration of conventional medicine and Ayush medicine, but also the interrelationship between Ayush medicines as well. So what you're seeing increasing now is, you know, natu nat naturopathic doctors are working more with Ayurvedic doctors, you know, Siddha uh, doctors are working more with um, Yunani doctors. So it's it's a really interesting laboratory for that. And and so this this Ayush, um, so this na 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 National Naturopathy Day was quite interesting because, you know, traditionally um, a lot of those other Ayush systems not that they weren't invited, but they were just generally a little bit siloed. Um, and we're, we're really starting to see the um, the embrace of that integrated and interprofessional approach between different systems of traditional medicine. I think that's that's really going to push, um, you know, push the dial forward on 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 um, you know just the potential of what what uh, traditional medicine can do in that country. So, um, you know, and a really good example is India has generally um, avoided really. Um, Indian naturopaths generally really avoided, um, you know, manufactured high dose herbal medicines uh, in favor of more drugless, so, you know, or, or you know, um, sort of less less invasive therapies. And we're actually seeing them now, um, I, I guess, being a little bit more, you know, having having a little bit more in common with with, um, uh, you know, naturopathic practitioners in Australia or 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 America, for example, where they're using that whole spectrum of care. Um, but on the same token, you know, the, the inpatient model of, of naturopathic hospitals in India 
Um, you know, Germany has some of it, but, but really that's a very unique model that I think, you know, Australian and American naturopaths can learn a lot more from because it's a, um, you know, for things like diabetes or, or chronic diseases, it's, you know, it's basically a way to, um, you know, help people identify the best ways to heal themselves, you know, bring the practices on that they actually take on further and have a lifelong benefit. And, you know, you've seen a lot of things like diabetes remission, which is really important in in countries like um, India, which has one of the highest diabetes rates in the world. But, um, um, you know, sometimes I think we focus so much in Western countries on, um, you know, high tech and, and very invasive and very detailed solutions. We often forget the simple stuff. So um, so I think there's a lot we can learn from from that aspect as well. So the internationalization of a lot of these therapies as well is really exciting because we're starting to you know, be able to identify, okay, you've done this really well, let's take that and incorporate it into Australia. You've done this really well, let's, um, you know, so so I think there's a, yeah, there's an enormous, you know, benefit there. And, you know, India um, is is really interested in exploring just the potential of all traditional medicine systems in a way that I think few other countries are. So, you know, if you're looking at the, the countries that are really leading the charge, you know, it's probably, um, you know, Africa as a region, I think is, is, is certainly, you know, moving forward, um, as much you know as 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 much as it can but it's it's sort of hampered a little bit by resource constraints and a few other things and it, it probably doesn't have um the the global support that i think it probably should I'm, I'm i'm always actively trying to encourage you know companies to partner <laughs> um you know with africa uh, a lot more because there's just so much potential in that continent but really i think india and brazil are the two countries where um you know uh the the you know the integrative agenda are just really being pushed um further than anywhere else interesting the part about africa what are mm. some of the potential coming out from this region especially in terms of like say the botanicals that uh, you know companies could possibly explore and what are some of the functionalities health benefits of of some of these um uh, botanicals yeah, you look, you know, Africa, I think, has always been a little bit dismissed um, in terms of traditional medicine use. And certainly we, um, well, you know, I remember being taught that, you know, people in Africa used, you know, had the highest use of traditional medicine, but it wasn't, it, it was only because they couldn't get access to quote unquote, you know, real medicine. So, um, so you know, we, we, we've got a, a postdoc, um, Peter James, who used to be the, the head of the um, FDA equivalent in, in Sierra Leone, who works with us. And he, um, conducted the first ever, um, you know, uh, systematic review of traditional medicine use in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa. And it's actually completely the opposite. If you um, develop the health systems in those countries further, um, you don't reduce the use of traditional medicine, you actually increase it. So the more access that African populations have to, um, you know, uh, hospital care or primary health care, you know, in that conventional um, approach, um, the more, you know, the more likely they are to actually use traditional medicine. And, you know, that, that shouldn't be surprising. It's exactly the same thing we see in Canada or Australia or the US or, um, you know, or, or Singapore or other countries. Um, uh, but for some reason, I think, you know, there's there's a lot of assumptions made about Africa and what, you know, um, you know what these things are. But, you know, Africa, African countries have... Um, not lost that connection with with traditional knowledge and traditional medicine in a way that a lot of other regions have. Um, you know, there are, you know, you talk to, you know, I, I come from the field of public health and I come from the field of, of, of medical practice and nearly every medical practitioner, you know, nearly every African, you know, medical practitioner or public health professional or policy person that I speak to use traditional medicine and, you know, 
believe in the power of, of, of their own traditional medicines, but they don't have the, the structures or the framework or the infrastructure to actually fully expand that. And that, that's in terms of research or manufacturing. Um, if you go to many countries in, in, in Africa, um, uh, you know, and you go to a pharmacy, the the herbal medicines or the nutritional supplements that you'll see are usually imported from, you know, the, the few countries in that region that have um, manufacturing capacity, like South Africa, um, or are imported from the US or Canada or Australia or or, or other places. And the the local traditional medicines are usually found in the market. So, um, you know, there is a capability and a capacity gap that I think that exists there. Um, you know, a lot of these, you know, medicines are incredibly powerful. So we saw, you know, um, you know, Mali is a country that has really, um, you know, taken this on board and and really, you know, pushed this forward and developed, you know, our capacity, you know, as much as they can. But, um, you know, there are things like, uh, you know, um, good agricultural practices um, for, for developing the raw materials, for example. Often these things are informally grown or grown um or grown in a um in a setting that um you know might not be as standardized as as would be appropriate for a uh um you know uh for for, for many you know for many western manufacturers the manufacturing capacity is not often there um as much as it should be the regulatory capacity is not actually there as much as it should be so we've just had a um uh, later on this year, we're going to be working with WHO on developing a regulatory model for for Africa. We've got a um, uh, a regulator from uh, Zimbabwe and and Botswana. He's run the regulatory authorities in both countries. He's going to be coming. That's basically going to be his doctoral project, working in conjunction with um, WHO and Africa to develop a regulatory model for uh, for Africa. But you know, the manufacturing capacity um, isn't there. The research, you know, is very impressive for the capacity that they actually have, but probably needs a boost as well. So it's really early days in Africa, but there's just so much potential um, in, in in that country. And, um, you know, already a lot of African traditional medicines, even despite that lack of capacity, are on the essential medicines list um, of many of those countries and WHO Africa region. So, um, but it's, you know, I think I think the whole world always sort of you know sees Africa as a black spot and doesn't just you know acknowledge the incredible potential of that continent. And there's just um, you know it's it's a fascinating, diverse um, and just you know it it's it's it, Africa is the future of, of of herbal medicine. I think we're we're ignoring that as much as um, to our peril as to theirs. So. Indeed, yes. I I guess I'm um, like you mentioned quite a lot of like international projects. So I mm. guess you'll be traveling quite a bit for this year. Is that the case? Like, uh, what what are some of the you know maybe events or conferences that you'll be attending? Yeah, yeah, sure. So uh, yeah, I I I do travel a little a little bit, probably probably too much. <laughs> um, um, thinking back, but so so you know my my next trip's going to be to the US next month. Um, we work. Um, we're actually members of the Academic um, Consortium for Integrative Health and Medicine, which is a um, an international group, primarily US. So you know, um, you know, uh, you know, Harvard, you know, University of Chicago, Northwestern, you know, University of Washington, my old alma mater, and Boston University, my other um, old 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 workplace, are, are sort of members of that, and that's that's really focused on the integrative medicine practice and and training part of it. So we'll be working with that and actually working with them on how we develop our integrative medicine program a little bit you know further because you know i think at the moment every country is doing things differently so we're trying to um 
you know work with that a little bit uh, a little bit more closely um i'll be in 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 um uh the united arab emirates uh, later on just to discuss the same thing um we're also we also work quite closely with some of the national centers um globally so the, the one at the university of mississippi for example we're just in the process of um finalizing a, a memorandum of understanding with and we're really going to be um expanding on our preclinical um you know programs with them and you know like you know the university of mississippi is the fda center uh for excellence in the us and you know one of their well, currently their only recognized facility for for analytical chemistry and um for for, for regulatory purposes um and you know, uh, we're one of only two facilities recognised by the TGA in Australia for that same purpose. So we're, you know, there's a real natural partnership that we're developing. And now our Natural Products Futures Forum is really um, essentially being being uh, established as uh, the Western Pacific regional equivalent to um, the International Congress on the Science of Botanicals that the University of Mississippi holds. So we're, we're, we've got a nice relationship that we're working with Iblis and his group at the University of Mississippi on. Um, I'll be meeting quite a few of the naturopathic programs globally. So the the Canadian College in Toronto, uh, in Bastyr in in Seattle, and we're actually working with them on development of a um, you know, international clinical trial capacity, basically, so that we can actually work on um, uh, you know multi-site trials that are actually uh, not just you know multi-sites across the countries, but actually international in nature as well. So uh, and then. That that takes me up, I think, until April. So, so it's quite a few. Wow, wow. Um, very, very and, busy for you. Yeah, and we'll be working. I'll, I'll be going to the WHO uh, General Assembly and the World Federation of Public Health Conference um, in Europe later this year as well. And we're we're working on developing a special interest group for traditional medicine, uh, traditional complementary and integrative medicine, um, in the, you know, amongst public health associations. So we've been working with. Um, so I'm convener for the Australian Public Health Association special interest group in that area. Um, Danielle, Danielle Diego is the um, representative from the US American Public Health Association. We've also got um, the Indonesian Public Health Association, uh, Chinese Preventive Medicine uh, Association, the Brazilian, uh, South African um, and New Zealand equivalents, as well as a you know, host of other countries that are actually involved in that process. So um, just to you know, give a bit of a public health, a global public health lens on what, um, you know, what the future might look like for um, for traditional complementary and integrative medicine. And I think, you know, historically the public health community have always focused on, you know, regulate it and <laughs> make it safer and all that kind of stuff. But we're trying to to move that conversation more towards um, things like, you know, well, we have the global health community has a priority agenda for preventive health, for health promotion, for preconception care, for self-care. You know, how does this sector actually fit into that? Because there's a lot of potential, I think, for for the sector to be more involved in those discussions and certainly it's um as a center clinically it's what we do and and it'd really be nice to see that at a more strategic level happening globally as well yes i see yeah i hope it will be very um uh, it'll be fruitful trips for you and that you'll be having some like um insightful discussions with the counterparts from different countries to mm. advocate yeah to, to to further promote the the growth of the naturopathic scene in australia yes yeah. thank you so much for your time today to speak with me on on your goals and key projects for this year thank you thanks so much Tingling. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to Neutra Champion on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. You can also head to NutraIngredients-Asia.com for more content and news on the nutrition industry.